From embellishment and exaggeration to examinations of identity, gender and desire, the new exhibition Pleasure, opening at RMIT Gallery on the 29th of November, presents the work of a diverse group of 48 artists who use the body as a personal, provocative and at times political canvas from the flamboyant 1980s to contemporary times. It's curated by Professor Julian Goddard, Helen Raymond and Dr Evelyn Cetus and it challenges our ideas about the nature of pleasure and how our bodies give, receive and rejoice in pleasure. My name is Aidan Ratcliffe and I'm joined in studio today by Dr Evelyn Cetus, curator of Pleasure. Evelyn, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Aidan. Why pleasure? Why not pleasure? We were really interested as curators in exploring how the body can be used as a canvas. It's a metaphor. It can be used as provocation, a personal reflection, but also a political canvas. And what we've done is actually look at how artists have done this in a range of mediums from the 1980s to now. And when I say 1980s, we were really interested in using as a starting point some works from the Robert Pierce collection in the RMIT Design Archive. And um, it's wonderful to be able to draw from the university's own collections. Robert Pierce was known as a, a fashion designer. He was also a graphic designer. And um, some of the works that we saw that had been donated to the collection were really stunning representations of the gay scene in the uh, early 1980s. That wonderful um, body beautiful representation, highly sexualised, um, really fascinating and erotic. And it got us thinking, gosh, subcultures are very interesting. How have artists use subcultures to talk about politics and use the body always as that starting point. Some of the works in the exhibition are of a, a sexual nature. What was it like navigating that when it came to picking the works to show in the exhibition? There's always um, an issue when you want to explore um, sexuality in art of, um, well, how is it not pornographic? But then you think of for millennia, artists have always looked at um, the human body, pleasure and sexuality uh, in their work. What makes that different from perhaps what you see on the internet, which is all pervasive? Well, um, what we felt, um, especially uh, for Helen and myself as women, was that we wanted to look at work that had nuanced voices, perspectives. We didn't want to have work that portrayed women in a certain way as objectified, uh, decorative um, or simply, I don't know, passive objects. We wanted to show uh, women in um, positions of, of power, women using and flipping around the idea of pornography in an interesting way. For instance, um, artist Leah Emery does what I call granny porn. <laughs> and that granny is, porn. <laughs> well, in a sense of, she uses what is a traditional women's um, uh, art technique, which is petty point, you know, uh, which is tapestry. And she takes hardcore online pornography and, and uses that in her tapestry. So she's kind of reflecting back and looking back at it. And she also looks at vintage vintage porn in the same way. So she is basically taking ownership and reinterpreting um, these images. Other works that we uh, use are very well-known surrealist artist Peter Ellis and he has a, a, an artist book from the, uh, the 1980s that he did with Tosh Berlerner and it was an erotic book at the time that um, you know caused a lot of interest and we've got some beautiful etchings from there. So it does of course uh, conjure up that come and see my etchings. <laughs> but you um, you know, we also have um, the idea of shoes being a sort of a fetish object and um, we have some fabulous shoes in the exhibition which are, are so outrageous they can't be worn. <laughs> but as Bette Midler said, with the right shoes, you can rule the world. There's a pleasure plus room. Yes. We, Tell me about that. 
Okay, so we felt that um, although there is this thread of sexuality through the show, there were some works that um, we felt should be separated simply because, look, if you're coming through with with um, our children, for instance, uh, we are on Swanson Street, we are a general open to the public gallery, a lot of families come in, especially as this show is running over summer. We wanted to give people the opportunity to make a decision about whether their children should, you know, you know, be warned or go through or not. And, uh, and that's we felt that's perfectly fine. But um, so we've we've put it in this room, which we've called Pleasure Plus. And as I said, we're not interested in things like, you know, run-of-the-mill online hardcore pornography, nothing like that. But some of the works may be in the context, I guess you could say, adult themes. And one of those is um, Judith Glover's uh, very large uh, display case with two bento boxes, which look at um, slow rituals of sexual pleasure. And these include ceramic dildos. And um, Judith... Um, is an industrial designer and uh, she's probably got maybe Australia or the world's only PhD in sex toys. So it comes from a a place of deep research, her work. Um, So none of this is gratuitous or salacious, but as well, maybe you need to be able to be in um, that, uh, have it in the context of the exhibition and understand this to go in. Maybe not one particularly for the family. Well, this is an interesting point. There are a lot of very interesting and fun works in the show. Uh, one of those is as you walk in, of an 80 kilogram nail suit by this emerging artist, Kiara Murphy, who's just finished her undergraduate degree at RMIT. So it's very exciting to have um, a newly emerging student uh, into the art world uh, in the exhibition. This uh, is a piece she's going to be performing in at opening night. It's so heavy, she can't put it on. She has to lie down and have it eased over her like a cocoon. And she can only wear it for 10 minutes at a time it's that heavy but it looks amazing it looks like a cross between a yeti and a knight from you know the medieval times and um, it celebrates the pleasure of work believe it or not well, Evelyn, you spoke to Kiara during the week. I did, and it was wonderful to hear her talk about the evolution of her work and the concept, but also as part of um, her piece, she is um, exhibiting a video, and uh, that video shows her walking down Elizabeth Street wearing this outfit, and the reactions from people are priceless, especially when if she's so exhausted she has to take off the, the top part, I guess the mask, if you like, of the outfit, and uh, people are very concerned because... She's clearly exhausted. But, um, you know, when she wears it, she really needs to have a couple of people watching her and standing by because wow. it's um, it is actually can be a threat to her health. Jeez, that sounds pretty serious. Well, it does. And I was really interested, actually, um, in wondering how and why Kiara, you know, made this piece. And so I asked her about the evolution of the work. So it originated from a soft sculpture class that I was taking. Um, it was taught by Fleur Summers, one of the head lecturers at RMIT sculpture department. And yeah, the assignment was to just create something that was soft. Um, and previous previous to that, none of my practices were really with cotton or fabrics or anything like that so I wanted to incorporate metals into that project and yeah kind of just came through further exploration and messing around with accumulation as a way to convey that sort of softness and malleability without having to heat treat anything or to having to melt anything. So it's made of metal nails? Yes yeah so they're big carpenter nails so you get a big uh, boxes on Bunnings, all steel, and they're just kind of threaded through this um, non-stick, like non-slip fabric. Um, so yeah. when you say they're threaded through, uh, do the nails have? Did you make holes in them so you could? No, they actually so have them? the fabric that I used is um, 
to stop things from moving underneath furniture. So it's oh. got, it's perforated. So mm. it already had holes. So you just thread them through one by one. Yeah. I don't know how many meters of, of that stuff I used, but it was quite a lot. How many nails did you use? It was 13,000. 13,000? Yeah, which is crazy. <laughs> but um, yeah, and over the course of three months, um, I just threaded through and found a way to make it lay like fur. It does. It, it yeah. really looks like an animal. Yeah, definitely. It's got this amazing quality to it. Like the bulk of it really conveys that sort of like animalistic bear-like form, which is really interesting. I wasn't really expecting it to be so attached to that idea. So presumably you would have been trying it on during the process of making, did you? No, No. actually, no. Um, I was just banking on it working. (laughs) (laughs) That's confidence for you. Okay, this is just going to work. Yeah, because, you know, making something like that's kind of like a one shot sort of thing. You have to cut out the sheets to fit the suit because there's a um, boilermaker suit underneath it um, just to hold its structure. So you kind of have to do it one go and see if it works. And luckily it worked. So, yeah. (laughs) At what point did you decide to do the performative aspect in? Yeah, that definitely came after. It wasn't really I wasn't really intending on performing anything in it. Um, It was just like this random spark of of an idea that I wanted to see through. But once it was done and I actually put it on, the weight of it, the way it makes you move, it's sort of its own entity when you put it on. I thought it was, oh, I had to. I had to do some kind of performance in, in public to see the reaction and, you know, how I felt in public as well in that suit, being surrounded by this process of labour, which I really enjoy. So, yeah, it was interesting. So at some point in our lives have had the experience of dressing up Mm. if not for a fancy dress party as kids and uh, the way we can disappear inside that identity definitely yeah and you really do disappear because the suit goes over my face as well you can't see me underneath it I'm completely covered and it's kind of like this back and forth between physical labor trying to trudge along in this big huge suit but then also I don't know I had this weird feeling of comfortability with it sort of like a weighted blanket on you in a way that I don't know I found it really cathartic as well but at what point did you realize that your time in that suit was running out oh yeah well um, (laughs) yeah like it's such a strain you kind of feel like okay I can do this for a bit longer and a bit longer and a bit longer but then it kind of gets to the point where you're walking and maybe five or six minutes have gone past and your shoulders start to droop down and moving your arms is like the hardest thing in the world and your chest is really compressed and yeah it just really physically weighs down on you there's a point in um, the performance that I did on the street where I just had to sit down and kind of collect myself and close my eyes and be inside myself and just be like okay you can just continue just down the street it's all right that was a nice moment in that as well to be able to kind of collect myself and acknowledge what I'm doing right now. And I, I just um, I love the reaction in the video, which is it's also hilarious. being shown in <laughs> yes. the gallery yeah. on a huge screen. Yes, so definitely. It, uh, which is really exciting. Um, a broad range of reactions, amazement, shock. I had, there was one lady who wasn't really was just kind of minding her own business, and she looks up, she sees this big metal thing, and she screams really loudly, which is hilarious. And yeah, just like reactions of curiosity and concern. When I was sitting down, kind of breathing and focusing myself, um, there was some construction workers next to us and they were kind of looking over and going, is she okay? Is she all right? Does she need help? Something we can do? Yeah. 
It was really just funny. as well um, it wasn't in a 40-degree heat day. Yes, exactly. The work is uh, being exhibited in a huge yes. exhibition called it's Pleasure. It's massive, yes. And uh, with um, a range of artists emerging very well-established international. Yes. How does that feel? It feels great. It's amazing. Um, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be a part of this exhibition. Even just going in whilst they're installing everything to help out with mine, it was incredible to see the range of works there and how developed they are and it's really inspiring to be in and around that sort of space. There are many works there that um, of course you know play off the idea of the decorating of the body, the transforming of the body and uh, the pleasure of the body and Mm. as a co-curator of that show when I saw your work we were just um, like it has to be in there because that (laughs) touches on every level. So tell me about the aspect of pleasure in your work. Yeah well it sounds a bit strange but the pleasure really is in the process of making that suit. When I was you know creating the, the fabric and threading the nails I kind of just went somewhere else and for me being able to delve into myself and kind of connect uh, my mind and my body in that way in such a simple way um, was really important for me and it was it was great it was the best best way of making things for me yeah I'm able to kind of go into my subconscious and really exist in that area in that space in my mind and yeah I see like the suit as a performance kind of wearing that pleasure on top of myself so it's revealing a different part of me but also sort of hiding me as well yeah it's uh, it's really interesting in an age that's so te- technological so digital yeah that um it's this uh, the making the haptic the process of, mm. of the doing yeah you know, maybe the artists are in a privileged position here I thought well, yeah I don't know I think at least for me the process and making it myself making the fabric myself was important to establish that connection because like you said there's so much you know social media and there's a lot of hiring people to make your work and you know especially if it's on a larger scale I kind of I don't know I don't really see, I feel like there's a missed opportunity there to kind of explore the connections you have with your mind and your body in a different way when you don't go through that process. Whatever process it is, it doesn't have to be repetitious or laborious. Just physically making something with your hands, you know, um, wielding different types of tools and things to make something with yourself, I think is really important and it's kind of lost now. So I kind of wanted to establish that within myself. And um, you are at the end of your yes, undergraduate Yes, I'm graduating. Course. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. What, uh, what next for you as an Um, Well, I would like to continue exhibiting. So um, yeah, going on with that, continuing to develop my practice. Um, I have applied for honours, so hopefully I'll be an honours student here next year. Now that I've established this need to create like I have, it's time to kind of delve into that and see exactly why I do that and what my affinity is with it. Good luck for the work ahead and thank you for speaking with us today. Thank you so much. Well, it sounds like Kiara's got a great career ahead in the arts. It does, and, you know, it's so exciting to see emerging artists in this exhibition along with a lot more established artists. And, uh, you know, for instance, we've got these fabulous, uh, huge works by a renowned photographer, Robin Beach, of um, Lee Bowery, who was quite famous in the 1980s as a performer and avant-garde designer himself. And um, we have actually some really interesting works, Aidan, in the show okay. uh, by John Pastoriza Pinol. And he has um, a PhD in botanical art and he is known as one of Australia's foremost botanical artists. And you're going to say you've got 
drawings of flowers in the show. Well, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> I'm thinking there's some etchings of flowers. No, in fact, John has taken the techniques he uses to actually do detailed work, um, sort of of the texture of the stem and skin of flowers, if you like, and transferred that into a documentation of Melbourne's gay leather scene. Was not expecting that link. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, John uh, is uh, very interested in the subculture himself as an active participant, and from an insider's point of view, he uh, has created these wonderful works which basically look at um, using leather as a source of of pleasure and of dressing up an identity and you know that's that's part of what a lot of you know the works in the show are about which is the pleasure we get in transforming ourselves one way or another and John's going to be doing a talk as part of the Midsummer Festival at the RMIT Gallery, Evelyn. It's going to be fascinating because he's going to take us through the Melbourne leather scene, an insider's perspective. And um, I think what is really interesting about that, uh, that there are strict codes of conduct and, you know, um, very sort of uh, rigid um, demands on what the participants have to do in terms of how they wear clothes, where they buy clothes, how they have them made. And it's a big commitment, especially in terms of price. It can be up to $50,000. Wow. I know. It's a lot of money for leather. <laughs> it's a lot of money for leather. And Evelyn, you spoke to John during the week. I did. And you know, the first thing I asked him was, well, what's the historic context behind the leather scene? When we look at it historically, it pretty much started around about the 1940s. And it was pretty much just uh, towards the end of the Second World War. We started to see that a lot of the military uniforms were mainly made of um, ma- main- of leather. What we found is that it was very much an an ideal or a, a, an archetype of a strong mascul- masculinity. And what had happened was that it started to um, move into more of a post-war environment through uh, motorcycle gangs and other types of um, areas associated with um, motorsports. It pretty much kicked off in in UK, for example, with the rockers in um, in Britain. Uh, the rockers were a, a, a bike cult. <laughs> now, was this in the the fifties? Yeah, it was in the it was in the early fifties, and they had identified themselves by wearing pretty much jackets, chaps, pants, and it was very much a strong sense of um, rebellion and masculinity and um, and strength, and this is probably why a lot of uh, gay men were attracted to this type of aesthetic. What they wanted to do is then start to emulate that. And then we started to see this uh, transform uh, around about the um, the 60s and 70s, of obviously with uh, the influences of rock and roll. Uh, you had these amazing... Um, uh, members of society like uh, Elvis and and the Beatles who also would be wearing leather it then became this almost like this uniform that uh, a certain group of gay men would be associated with so it's really looking at that sense of really strong power masculinity very um, you know looking really purely at um, this ideal at that point where there was a publication of a work by a Finnish um, artist by the name of Tom of Finland and he started drawing leather right back in the 40s he was the first one to really look at it as being a, a sign of you know, you know strength what we then see is that he started to look and um, idolize certain characters so all of these characters were mythical and then all of a sudden they became an adoption by the, uh, a certain part of the gay community. And so what we then see is it really starts to 
manifest in all different parts of um, society, uh, whether it's through uh, music. So uh, people like uh, Freddie Mercury, of course, we all identify him as being a very out and proud um, gay man, but he would also um, associate himself with the leather community. And then also in fashion, so you've got um, designers like Gianni Versace and Jean-Paul Gaultier who were really looking at that subculture as a site of reference for, for their um, runway shows. And it almost came to an end towards the 80s during the AIDS crisis. It was really because a lot of these congregations of people were uh, associated with a um, hedonistic lifestyle. They weren't very safe, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, what then happened was a lot of the members of that community uh, did unfortunately get sick and, and pass. And it wasn't again until probably around about the 90s that we started to see this aesthetic start to grow again. And what we see nowadays is we have these communities that are now interconnected through, I guess, the internet, uh, through social media or um, other types of platforms. And it's, it's really interesting to see that this is growing and growing again. And there's so many places where we can enjoy and, and view these types of events and, and cultures around the world which is really good so it, for me it was a really interesting reference point to to have a look at to to extrapolate to see I guess what type of artistic connections that we can look at there's so many ways that I guess this has manifested in in contemporary art we look at the work by Robert Maplethorpe who started to document um, ma mainly leather men in the early 80s and it was mainly uh, groups associated with the San Francisco uh, underground movement and it was interesting because people didn't really understand the aesthetic they didn't understand that there was a strict code. It's really interesting to see that there's different ways that you can identify yourself through uh, putting on different garments. I think this is uh, the wonderful aspect of dressing up in pleasure. Yes, and, very uh, much so. How we can, yes, have different mm. identities, yeah. secret identities. <laughs> so my only knowledge of, uh, of what you're talking about, the codes of conduct, mm. would be from some movies I have yeah. seen. Mm. And I don't know whether these are quite well researched or not, <laughs> but uh, you might know, know the ones I'm mm. um, thinking about are like uh, American Gigolo. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. So, um, and cruising. I cruising, think. yes. yes that's yeah. right. Perhaps you can sort of talk about how we use clothing to identify yeah. and uh, a sort of a, as an entree into this secret world. Yeah. So, obviously, there's different ways that men can associate in this, sub uh, this subculture, I should say. And obviously, the first one is through a uniform. So, the, the highest level that you can uh, dress is via a uniform. And it goes back, I think, to those, the aesthetic of the uh, Second World War and post-Second World War uh, motorcycle influence. So obviously a lot of the garments worn by a lot of the soldiers during that time were more protective than more than visual. The idea was that those garments were going to protect them during an incident if they came off their bikes. So that's why there's this always push to have uh, motorcyclists wear leather because obviously it can protect the body in the event of a, a fall. And then what happened is that those elements started to transform slightly. And, and what happened now is people were like, oh, I like my boat, motorbike, but I want to have that same look without having the, the, the danger element associated <laughs> with riding around. And so what we see is a, a uniform called Langlets. So the Langlets uniform is very much very formal attire, and that is actually made for you custom in different artisans, mainly in Berlin. And so that is very much a strong commitment to that scene. As you start to go down, you can start to change the, I guess, the uniform. So a lot of people say chaps and a harness is the way that I want to be identified and a jockstrap. Some people like wearing a, 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 a slofter uniform, which is usually a shirt, a, a 
Sam Brown and boots and pants. So it's really interesting to see how the culture identifies themselves. And then we can introduce the the concept of the Hanky Code, which talks about the different types of interests you are on a sexual level. (laughs) (laughs) Another aspect of pleasure. What uh, what I found really interesting is um, you talked about how social media um, Mm. was sort of um, spearheading sort of like a resurgence of uh, of knowledge and interest. Mm. But I wonder whether uh, are people still interested in going along and being part of this in in real life when they can, you know, get this on Instagram, so to speak. (laughs) So obviously um, Tumblr and Instagram are really good ways that people can actually start to experience that, that subculture and look at the various ways to identify yourself in that scenario. I recently was in New York and New York has a place called the Eagle Bar, very well-known destination for guys who, who like wearing leather. What's happened now though is that obviously with online hookup things such as Grinder and Scruff, a lot of people don't need to go to these venues in order to facilitate an interaction. So what we're starting to see is not many people are actually getting dressed, getting prepared, going out. I went out on a Thursday night, which was a gear night, and I was one of the only people in the room (laughs) wearing gear, uh, which was really disappointing for me, but everyone was coming up to me going, wow, I love what you're wearing. I said, but, you know, where's your gear? You should be wearing it. Just um, thinking about uh, those um, drawings of yours, Mm. which depict that scene what does it mean to have that say in a gallery setting you know the sort of the context of the white box <laughs> yes. to actually have have that uh what i really wanted to do with this particular body of work was i really wanted to look at the male form as a site of sexual exploration and enjoyment very much the way that i would look at a flower or we all would enjoy natural history in that sense as well i wanted though to turn it around and look at certain erogenous, erogenous zones to identify the fact that we're looking at something that is quite attractive, quite beautiful, but it's also about what lies underneath. And so there's always that want to know a little bit more. What we did with this particular show was it coincided with a particular event during the um, calendar uh, with uh, the leather scene here in Australia. And it was the August week of leather. It's an opportunity where people from around Australia and also around the the world can actually come to Melbourne and just enjoy a whole week of events surrounding the leather scene. (laughs) And what I wanted to do is I wanted to be able to allow people to contextualise the work with the community. So I invited a lot of my brethren to come into the gallery on a special evening wearing gear for the people uh, who would attend the gallery to understand what they were looking at to understand that there was a very rich culture and they could actually ask questions, they could touch, um, they could be, do it in a really passive and in quite an inquisitive way. Mm. And uh, it's great from, from that solo show that you mm. had in August, uh, we've selected quite a, a few of yes, your drawings yeah. to put in the pleasure exhibition. Yes. And again, uh, that will bring in obviously um, an audience, I'm hoping perhaps so, yes. that, uh, <laughs> uh, like myself, um, who didn't know about uh, the existence of that scene. Mm. But um, the um, the things you've touched on about um, what lies underneath and I guess um, that sort of, you know, hidden sexuality, yes. you know, that uh, using uh, clothes to, um, you know, represent and promote bodily pleasure as yes. well, which we, we, you know, obviously is, is something that's there. <laughs> but uh, again, that interaction um, and that reference constantly to contemporary art, mm. Robert Mapplethorpe, who, as we know, was uh, um, always uh, very interested in depicting, I guess, the eroticism of flowers. Yes. The botanical um, as well as the human form. So I just find that a wonderful connection there that you have (laughs) as well. 
So uh, just finally, the, uh, sort of, um, I, I guess uh, the last um, question is, um, you talk about Melbourne being the the, the hotbed of the the leather scene, yes. not Sydney. Not in Sydney. Fact. <laughs> Why would that be? I think we had a bit of a talk about this uh, earlier. The fact that you know um, Melbourne is very much a leather city, and I think we have the climate and the weather to really support that type of um, garment. Whereas in Sydney, it gets quite hot, so <laughs> we could assume that you know global uh, warming has a, <laughs> and climate change has an influence on on, on the, the scene. scene exactly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting. So, well, thanks for joining us, John. Thank you. Well, that was an interesting insight into the gay leather scene there, but it's not the only scene explored in the exhibition. No, we've got um, a really interesting uh, work by Dr Judith Glover, who's an industrial designer, and uh, she has uh, made ceramic dildos and two bento boxes. Sorry, ceramic dildos and bento boxes. Okay, it's all about the slowing down of sexual pleasure. We've got slow food movement, you know, the slow relaxation movement. <laughs> she talks about the slow sexual movement. It sounds um, a little salacious, but it's it's quite serious because her interest is in how, as we get older and Australia has an ageing population, you know, the things we took for granted as, uh, as virile young bodies, you know, things need a little bit more time, a little bit more work, and that's where the bento boxes come in. Uh, it is about looking at food, perhaps a little sake, some relaxing music, and then going into other aspects of pleasure. So I asked Judith how on earth she became interested in the first place in designing sex toys. A long time ago, before I was an industrial designer, um, I was actually in a completely different era. I was actually a metalsmith. But um, look, I wanted to get out of metalsmithing because eventually it was I was going to get too physically difficult for me. I thought, hang on, what the hell's going on with this industry? Like, there's good design everywhere, except it seems the two areas, sex and death, um, at that particular point. And um, so I became, because I was a maker, I became fascinated by, okay, well, can you make better sex toys? So I took myself off to industrial design school. I didn't tell them at the uh, at the interview. That's what I wanted to do. I told them I was interested in furniture. <laughs> and then in fourth year, they were like, oh, so what do you want to do for your fourth year? And I was like, I want to start a sex toy company. And that caused a bit of a bit of a hoo-ha, but then I convinced them to let me do it. Caused a hoo-ha. What you were saying was there's obviously a niche, there's a, there's a demand that surely in, you know, that would have been an interest for anybody. Well, um, I think, look, the university I was at wasn't RMIT, so they're a little bit more conservative university. And uh, whereas RMIT kind of... It's great. It sort of really celebrates, you know, the the kind of the weirdness of what I do in the in the design world. Um, that's probably a good reason why I was hired uh, to to be here. So the other university was a bit more conservative, and of course they get worried about their reputation and are you going to freak out, you know, any students that might be religious or this sort of stuff. But when I explained to the head of the department that you know the problem was that they these products weren't being made to standard and they were unsafe and and you know and the whole point was that I I didn't want to to keep designing sex toys that were literal depictions of genitalia um, that I th- that I thought the contemporary women wanted completely different types of products and explained all of that and they were pretty fine with it and in fact I ended up taking that staying at that university and taking that all the way through to a PhD while I was starting to teach and while I started Goldfrau which became my sex toy company which was the research pro- which was the design project of my PhD. There's a, a lot of myths about sex toys as well as that E reaction that you just told me about and I guess the biggest one is that it's just men and, and young people who buy sex toys. 
yeah, completely. Like, um, I mean, one of the hardest parts of the thesis was finding good, reliable data on the use of sex toys or the consumption of, of tech sex toys. So occasionally one of the sex toy retailers or companies will, will put out their own kind of data and it's not what we would consider perhaps at university to be good data, but it is valuable in, in some ways. And then there's these health studies that sort of start, you know, big like American national health studies that start back in the 80s. And, it, and you know, every sort of, say, decade, one of those will start, to, will, will ask the question. And it's really interesting how those change over the, over the decades. And the use has gone up. You don't know whether it's that people are more, feel more comfortable now discussing that sort of stuff statistically quite reliable those sort of big health health surveys um but it seems to be that the trend is towards increased increased consumption and, and that you know um like i looked at that in my thesis is obviously um design is very much about the changing of of social mores and and behaviors and beliefs and also the changing of technology you know it sort of weaves in and out of each other as it goes across as it goes across time and it's not always technology that changes something it may be that the uh, social behavior might change that might push a bit of technology or something like that but in terms of that increased consumption I mean the, the probably yes the most startling thing that, that came out of a look at those 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 surveys was that it was uh, women uh, well I knew women were the biggest consumers but it was women who had more money higher professional status higher education like better education are uh, were more likely to own a sex toy so the biggest myth is that you know you're some sort of trailer park trash and you know you've got a box full of you know veiny dongers weird looking alien things when sex toys are actually relatively expensive i mean they're not essential spending you know you have to have a certain amount of income to start consuming them one of the other things too is that I'm thinking of um, Frankie and and uh, and Grace, the yes. Um, uh, yes. Netflix uh, yes. film with yes. Jane Fonda and yes. Lily Tomlin. What they're doing is starting a sex toy company for women over sixty. So yeah. there is a need or a, a sort of a desire or um, I guess a market for sex toys. I'm assuming for older women. Yeah, there is. Um, and look, it's not really being addressed. The sex toy industry effectively is made up mostly of adult industry companies. And then in the new millennium, you have a few what I would call design-led companies come into the market. Um, your Lilo's, your Jimmy Jane, although they've been bought out by a big porn company. WeVibe. Some of these some companies that were started by designers or engineers or employed industrial designers to start designing stuff. And the, the sort of the literal pornography goes out of the product design of, of the products and, and the branding. Because you're getting design culture come into the industry... Design culture kind of looks at things or designers try to look at things objectively. And so there was this mismatch in the way that the adult industry was framing female sexuality and what female, female they thought females wanted to be, which was sluts and naughty nurses and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Uh, and they were saying, well, no, the type of women they're going to buy sex toys are actually professionals and managers and other designers and creatives and they wear beautiful clothes and have great shoes and great cars and then they, they want great products they everywhere want, they want great they want great sex toys and so there was some great surveying that was done um in a thing called the Houston report back about 10 years ago out of the UK and they were specifically asking women who would you like to design your sex toys and it was coming back as we want apple and prada and those sort of companies women want products that are long lasting good quality work well and beautiful beautifully made and beautiful in part of the ethos of my sex toys and what people say why do you use ceramics there's lots of functional reasons but there's lots of great aesthetic reasons too because ceramic you then have it's a beautiful material and then you have this incredible endless array of decoration and ornamentation like some of the most exquisite objects that have ever existed have been made out of ceramics and so for me, it was also a celebration of female sexuality to say, you know, we deserve really beautiful, beautiful 
products rather than, you know, it's sort of being always thought of as the sex toys are trashy, just to completely turn that narrative around. Hmm. And I guess that uh, what an industrial designer would do is actually think of the use and how is it fit for purpose and how it is safe and ergonomic, I imagine. One of the tricky things about uh, making a porcelain dildo is people associate porcelain with fragility like bone china. Now, the reason bone bone china works is because you can get it so thin because porcelain, particularly bone china, is so so strong and tough. And that's how you can get that translucent translucent quality to it. So I actually make the wall thickness, they're actually hollow inside, and I make the wall thickness thicker than they have to be to give them a certain sense of weight. So when people pick them up, they they feel like that they're strong. They don't Mm. need to actually be that strong. So you've got the aesthetic side of a ceramic, which is that you get this incredible, beautiful, beautiful, amazing finish. And then the functional side of it is you've got an object which is hard and strong because you don't want a floppy dildo. You want a hard dildo. But then you've got this incredible sort of viscosity, like when when you put moisture on the side of it, it becomes slippery. So they're actually really, really beautiful products to use. Um, They're not for everybody. I've had girlfriends who just go, nah, don't like it. And I've had other ones that go, oh my God, this is the most amazing thing I've ever used. So... Like any piece of product design, you'll never design something that'll be that will suit everybody. I'm thinking that um, the the other demographic that doesn't get a look in very much uh, in this is um, people with disabilities. Well, we've actually been doing a research project with that for a Canadian um, Canadian company this year. There's a whole range of issues around disability in that there's a whole bunch of moral panics, but there's also disabled people get kind of infantilized like older people do. They shouldn't be having sex or it's the last thing that gets considered. And you know, and you meet these really, really intelligent people who are just trapped in bodies that don't work for various different reasons. They're born that way, accidents, and you just feel their sense of frustration because they have exactly the same hormones, exactly the same desires as all of us. And then you meet people like uh, who can't move their hands below their sternum. And if you can't move your hands below your sternum, and a lot of people it can be really painful if you've got things like cerebral palsy, well, you can't masturbate yourself. So that's the project that we've been working on. How do you help somebody who can't move their hands below their sternum? Because if you're a person with disability and say you've lost the use of your legs and you're in a wheelchair or something like that, if you've still got use of your arms and your hands, you can still have a, have a, have a sexual practice of yourself or somebody else. So you've got that freedom to grab something, to hold something, to hold something against something. But it's these people that can't actually hold very well have lack of dexterity and can't move their arms and their hands below their sternum. So that was a very interesting project. It's ongoing, but yeah, we're slowly getting somewhere with it. Which brings me to the beautiful work you have in Pleasure, which looks at slowing down of pleasure. Can Mm. you talk about uh, what you've contributed to the exhibition? So the piece is about sex and food. So it's called Bento Box, so Bento, play on words. But there, I mean, I put two separate boxes in there. One's a walnut, one's a maple. So it's a sort of a lighter set and a darker set. But So effectively, in the Bento Box, there's a ceramic platter with some cups, um, a little jug, which could either be used for something like sake or for lube. And then the dildos come in a leather wrap and then there's these beautiful wooden wooden chopsticks a friend of mine made. So Bethany Vernon, who's a... How would you describe Bethany Vernon? She's a French... I'll, I'll call her a sex toy designer. She hates the word sex toy. She's a gold and silversmith and then she did a master's um, at uh, Milan Polytechnico in industrial design. And then so she... she Well, I use ceramics, she'll use metal. And so she's, she's known for her kind of beautiful sexual pleasure objects. And she was also known back in the... I think it was in the late 90s or early 2000s, she had a sex club in Paris. So she's American. She ends up living in Europe, living, setting up in Paris... 
So she writes books on, you know, um, sexual pleasure and sexual activity and, and all of this sort of stuff. Um, I think the book I've got at home is called uh, Bedroom Boudoir. In that, she talks about the ritualisation of sex and the slowing, the slowing down of it. And I think as you get older, particularly if you change partners, you can sometimes sort of change your sexual practice because you're getting having a different partner. I really liked that idea I happened to have this particular partner once and they'd come over and we'd just spend the whole weekend cooking great food and having great sex you know and uh, that person wasn't they were they were my lover and they they weren't they weren't my, my my girlfriend or anything like that and then they would disappear you know and we'd just spend the whole the whole weekend sort of just immersed in this in this sort of activity of talking and having sex and having great food it always kind of and then when I read Bettany Vanon's book and she talked about the the slowing down the ritualization of 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 sex and I and I thought about designing this this box where you could you know you had because you know if you use sex toys and you're really into them you'll you'll have them in a, a beautiful box or something special and you'll pull it out and you'll lay out what you use or whatever a bit ritualistically well with the bento box you know you've got the sex toy in there but you've also then got your other things that you can um, have alcohol and then you know throw in some really nice sushi or prawns or whatever in there as well but I liked, and in design, you know, slow foods, slow food, slow design, they go together, slow sex. So yeah, that's what the bento box is about. Two of life's great pleasures, sex and food. And uh, as you've presented them, beautifully designed ways into pleasure, Mm. which is lovely. Thank you very much for talking with us, Judith. Pleasure, Evelyn. Well, another interesting insight, Evelyn, from an artist whose work and work practice we don't hear too much about. Exactly. And I think it's important because pleasure equals life. And I think that's the the thread of the exhibition. And artist Kate Durham talks about how we should pursue pleasure more than we do. And she said, we should wear it, eat it, ride it, bathe it, slip it on, gorge on it, experience it, even to excess. Sometimes grateful that we can, for we are not yet deprived, drought driven or drowned, not yet. Pleasure is delightful, pleasure is essential, but ephemeral. Seek it, take it, give it when you can. Well, what a great note to end this podcast on, Evelyn. And uh, there is a chance for us all to see the Pleasure Exhibition. There is. It's going to be on all over summer, 29th of November on to the 7th of March, 2020. Pleasure, the exhibition presented by the RMIT Gallery, 344 Swanston Street, Melbourne, Australia. Dr Evelyn Cetus, thanks so much for wrangling together those artistic experts to speak to us today. It's been a pleasure, Amy.